Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here, Daniel. Daniel, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Can you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. Thanks, Robbie. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Daniel Chard. I uh, teach history at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington, up near the Canadian border. And I'm the author of Nixon's War at Home, The FBI, Leftist Guerrillas, and the Origins of Counterterrorism, which came out last fall with University of North Carolina Press in the Justice, Power, and Politics book series. Can I ask um, why you wrote Nixon's War at Home? What's it about? Because that, that's what piqued my interest. I saw it was labeled, talked about counterterrorism. And um, I've had this fascination as recent, just trying to figure out what the hell our history was. You know, it's a complicated thing, and there's a lot of different perspectives in it. But I think, you know, talking to as many people as I possibly can to learn it. Sure. So there's two parts of that question. Why did I write it and what's it about? And so I, I, I'll try to answer both. Uh, the, the short version of like why I wrote it is that I don't have a traditional academic career. Um, my first attempt at an undergraduate degree at Southern Connecticut State University, I dropped out and I was really involved in kind of different kinds of like radical politics. It was a, there's a militant animal rights movement and then there was the environmental movement, the movement to free Mumia Abu-Jamal as a Black Panther, still incarcerated, former Black Panther, still incarcerated in Pennsylvania. And then I was kind of the, in the anarchist wing of different, um, these different movements in the late 90s and early 2000s. And um, I ended up visiting some former, some, some people in prison who are considered we considered political prisoners, some of them had been in the Black Panthers or the Weather Underground or the, 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 the guerrilla offshoot of the Black Panthers, the Black Liberation Army. Um, that was informal, you know, back then. But anyway, I ended up, and then there was this thing that happened where in 2006, there was a whole, but there was a, the FBI rounded up a couple dozen um, mostly anar anarchists or former anarchists, most of whom had been active in the Pacific Northwest, where I now live. Um, I'd been on the East Coast before, um, who, who had been involved, who had been um, accused of participating in political arsons carried out in the name of the Earth Liberation Front. And, and, uh, and then in the post 9-11 era, there were these people who had, you know, they had done property destruction and, um, you know, burn it, but they made sure that there was people in the buildings they burned down, like Vail Ski Lodge in Colorado was the biggest one. There were some others. Um, and not, and I'm not trying to minimize how that might have been frightening or disturbing to the people who own those facilities, but they didn't kill anybody and they were made efforts not to hurt people, but they were labeled terrorists. And so anyway, I went, I ended up going back to school to finish a history degree. And I was just kind of like in this post 9-11 era being in these movements and seeing how people in these movements are being labeled as terrorists. Um, that had a big impression on me. And then I also kind of had a, some romantic views about some of these leftist guerrillas from the 60s and 70s. And I knew some of them, like, I still consider, there's some that I still consider friends, even though like I have, I'm, I look at the history a lot more critically now than I did then. Um, and, um, but what I, so I started, I went and ended up, you know, finishing a history degree at University of Southern Maine, ended up going to graduate school at University of Massachusetts Amherst and started looking at FBI documents that were doing surveillance of the weather underground or weathermen, what they were called weathermen before they went underground and started carrying out bombings to protest the war in Vietnam, to protest racist police violence in American cities and other aspects of US imperialism, right? They were, they were a, an offshoot of a group called Students for a Democratic Society, which was the biggest kind of organization of the student new left, as it was called. I'm nodding my head because I understand, but I, I've never heard of this before. So this is all new to me. All right, cool. Well, so I'm laying it down a little bit. So anyway, you've maybe have heard of COINTELPRO, the FBI's counterintelligence program. We can get back into that. Really, this work is um, 
really the most updated new research on the counterintelligence programs that's been really done for many, many years. Um, but at least the counterintelligence programs against the new left and the, the black power movement. But um, you may have heard of those. Where was I? But anyway, I, I you know, and I had heard about the, the about COINTELPRO and, and, and I kind of realized after I started doing this research, a lot of what, my, what I thought I knew about COINTELPRO and radical political violence um, in the 60s and 70s was inaccurate. But one, but, and we can get back to that. But what I started seeing in these documents as the FBI is, surveil is surveilling Students for Democratic Society and then the weatherman faction that breaks off um, at the, the National Convention in Chicago in 1969. And then, then they're, they're, they're promoting building a, like a youth guerrilla army in the United States as a strategy following Che Guevara in Latin America for revolutionary change. And I and then and then then some of there's a there's um three of them who die in a in in an accidental explosion as they're building a bomb in March 6, 1970. And after that happens, you start to see the FBI using terms like terror terrorists. They're still using revolutionary guerrilla still to and then they're trying to figure out how to deal with this problem of these people who are who are like now going underground, meaning they're getting they're 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 figuring out how to make fake IDs, fake identities, disguises. They've cut off ties with their friends, even their their moms and dads, and they've gone underground. They're living and they're committed to waging a guerrilla war against the U.S. and blowing blowing stuff up, government buildings. They 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 bomb the Capitol. They bomb they bomb the State Department. They bomb the Pentagon. The weather underground. Um, the Black Liberation Army, they, when they emerged, they started assassinating cops. So I started seeing this term terrorism emerge and I realized, okay, this is what I'm seeing here is the origins of this counterterrorism. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying like why I wrote the book, but the book is about the origins of, of this counterterrorism, which is preemptive policing tactics, right? Or a, a whole repertoire of of, of policing and surveillance, policing tactics, and in some ter ter terms, covert operations that are intended to destroy or disrupt or, or, or um, incarcerate people or organizations before an act of violence occurs, right? And that's what you have after 9-11. So it's the origins of that, but there's also a story here about the origins of the Watergate scandal. I got. I got to hear about that. You know, I got to ask that. Yeah. Okay. I gotta, I, yeah. Sure. But let me let me let you talk a little bit. I just said a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah. Um. <laughs> when it comes to the word terrorism, I bet that you probably have changed your idea of what gets labeled terrorist just by doing all this. I mean, looking through documents and realizing that it's it's really something that just threatens the establishment. Like, I think people hear the word terrorism, they think it's a threat to like they just want to kill civilians. They want to do all this. I believe that there's probably some of that out there, but there's also a certain aspect of terrorism, which is just a threat to the establishment. I mean, if you look at the punk movement, that was a big thing. That was a threat to the establishment. I mean, as much as people putting glue in their hair and running out into the middle of the street and setting garbage cans on fire is a thing, but you get enough people in a crowd, you know, things start to happen. And that's kind of the whole way of like trying to break up these, you know, protests and these things. And this is where the FBI starts. You start seeing a bunch of tactics. I mean, I've came across documents and I'm curious to some documents also you came across but i came across jonestown documents now i know the story of jonestown i actually reached out at a point to talk to survivors like family members to talk about what happened there and they asked me one simple question every single person i emailed they said do you agree with the official story and i was like what and they're like what you know is wrong and i'm like i well can you explain it to me i gotta talk to you i can't just you know i don't know and it's like this whole thing where you got to challenge is it what the media tells you and then you look into i've read the 700 parts and documents on the FBI website about Jonestown. And I can tell you that this fueled paranoia this person was experiencing, he definitely was a, 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 a crazy person. I'm not going to justify that. But when he was like, they're watching me, well, they had FBI informants in, you know, Jonestown. So, I mean, it was real paranoia because it was actually experiencing that. And it just makes you question more like, is everything you hear like, is this actually what that is is communism as bad as it is you know I, I had to understand it even deeper and i'm giving you a lot of hurt the pen click oh that oh <laughs> i didn't mean to be rude i was just taking a note i mean i think it, what you're saying is great um 
All right. So you were asking me about the meaning of terrorism and how my views on it have changed. And then you also mentioned like, just like these kind of rabbit holes of, of unknown or murky kind of information, murky history that's buried in declassified documents and, and, you know, the paranoia and, and, and conspiracy theories that come out of situations where you have government surveillance or even covert operations. And then you have, um, you have, uh, people doing shady stuff maybe, or being part of whatever, you know, I, Jonestown is a, is a rabbit hole that I haven't gone down personally, but to put this book together, I did look at like a lot of, and, and like, I didn't go deep into all of them. Um, but cause I was trying to do is see the forest for the trees, right. To, to be able to kind of, so, cause the thing is there's so many FBI documents that have been declassified. There's still more and other intelligence agencies that, that could be further classified so that the public can, can, can do what you're doing. Like go through them and try to learn from them. You know, there's some, there's a lot that's unnecessary class, unnecessarily classified, but there's also just so much that, that, that is declassified that sometimes we can get caught up, you know, we get caught up in going down one rabbit hole. And, and what I tried to do back to, as a historian is kind of look at this period of the Nixon era, which was really important in terms of, I mean, one of the things that you have a shift here is a shift from anti communism as a national security priority towards anti-terrorism as a national security priority and as a justification for the national security state and this massive kind of surveillance capacity of the federal government. It wasn't like a, a strong break. The strong break is like after the Cold War and the war and after 9-11, the war on terrorism where, you know, counterterrorism really becomes the main justification for this kind of surveillance state, as well as military interventions that, you know, just spread more terrorism and violence around. So I can come back to that other question. But so, but so a couple of things, just to wrap up, just one more thing I want to say about conspiracy theories before I get into um, th that, that terrorism question. I think what happens with Watergate and with, and, and then, and with the revelation of FBI misconduct, spying on Americans who are just like doing their constitutional, you know, using their constitutional rights of like assembling to be part of a social movement to like protest for women's rights or civil rights or into the Vietnam War. Like the revelation that that was happening. I mean, think, think about like, if you've, you know, you've probably seen like movies from like the 50s or the early 60s where everyone just believes in america right and that america is always going out in the world after world war ii right this is the prevailing ideas in america they're always going out in the world just to like make the world better for everybody else the definition of apple pie yeah right all that all that apple pie stuff you know the war in vietnam just blows that apart right so does all the urban uprisings that come after the civil rights movement in northern cities. You know, pe people are frustrated that you still have all this police violence going on. And then there's backlash to that. But another thing is like when these and, and, and it starts with a break in. It starts with a bunch of peace activists breaking into an FBI office outside of Philadelphia um, um, in, in late 1970. That 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 um, and, and the first like document that says COINTELPRO on it, like coming to the Washington Post. And I talk about that in the book, but like once that starts this whole snowball effect and then after Watergate, there's these massive government investigations of intelligence agencies. The most famous one is done by the Senate under um, led by Senator Frank Church from Idaho. It's called the Church Committee hearings. So anyway, like the Watergate also like in, in addition to like, like making all these documents available, it also leads to like a lot of just distrust of government, polarization, and also conspiracy theories on the right and on the left, and some that like don't neatly fit into either of those. And you know, as, like as a historian, like I try to look at what's what really happened, what's a conspiracy theory, and his and historicize the conspiracy theories themselves and how they play into people's political activities or um, on the right and the left, but. That I'll, the, the terrorism question, though, I'll try to just answer quickly. All right. I remember I, I, I participated in the movement against the invasion. 
I pro I was in protests against the invasion of Afghanistan, which were not very popular, but we did some and up in Portland, Maine, we even marched in Kennebunkport, which is George Bush's family hang house area. We, you know, there was like maybe a, a couple hundred of us did a march down. It was like people from all over Maine and stuff. We, we marched down to Kennebunkport, but also the war against the invasion in Iraq, you know, I, I even got arrested, you know, protesting the war, the invasion of Iraq. But like, I remember one of the signs we'd say is just war, war on, war is terrorism or like Bush is a terrorist, you know? So what I would say now as a historian is like, the, there's real violence. Like the 9-11 attacks killed almost 3,000 3, people. Like the pain and suffering still exists. But then the US invaded Afghanistan and Iraq, killed half a million, half a million people died um, in Iraq, you know, plus hundreds of thousands more in Afghanistan. And that was their conservative estimates. I mean, like, and we don't have like, they, they, they're still, and then and then created in, in Iraq a um, basically a, just a power vacuum where from that emerged the Islamic State and you know you just kind of have this cycle of these endless wars that have happened since 9/11. But but going further back, um, one of the things that's important about the history, if we're going to look at the history of terrorism, is historicizing the history of the term itself and how that term is used by people in power. So the, on one hand, yeah, you have real violence, but then you also have, you have, you know, really Nixon saying, you know, um, and, and people in the FBI saying these leftist guerrilla groups are terrorists. And then, um, but then using that as a justification for, you know, you know, clamping down on them with heavy policing activity that has a, has a broad blanket and, and attach and, and it goes after entire communities, political communities, or racialized communities. I write in this book about the FBI going, like harassing Arabs and Arab Americans throughout the US after attack at the Munich Olympics in 1972 by Palestinian nationalists who were attacking the Israeli- I wanna hear more about that. Team. Yeah, so, um, so the term, we need to look at the history of the term itself and how it's always been politicized. There's always been people arguing about what's terrorism, what's not, no government, None of the government agencies in the, U, in the U.S. government still, they don't have the same definition of terrorism. Like, they still can't agree on it. So it's always been, there's always been a, poli a broader politics around the question of what is terrorism, who does, and who gets to decide. And so I tried to historicize that rather than saying this is terrorism, that's not. Because the, the more interesting thing to me is the fact that people still don't agree and people are still going to argue about it. But how does that argument like sh help shape or reflect these aspects of these conflicts between social movements of the state or like these, between like violent insurgents and a state that's also violent? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like you're they just squash out things they don't want or they don't like because they have the power to, you know, they can label thing and divisiveize a population by just blasting in media saying this is terrorism. And, you know, a bunch of things were labeled, I think, during the pandemic. If you didn't get a vaccine, you're a terrorist. You know, there's a bunch of weird things that you're coming across. And it's just like, is that you're, you're using that word? It's like the word conspiracy. That word does not mean what it meant a, a long time ago. It meant something completely different. It's like calling somebody racist. That word is like, it just seems empty now because people just tweet about it and it just loses meaning. It's like hijacking a term. But you mentioned Watergate and you mentioned conspiracy and we mentioned like the government kind of distrust in a sense. A lot of that stems because you got Howard Hunt's interview where he made a deathbed confession to his son, and he's one of the spies of Watergate talking about slathering LSD on a driver's steering wheel, hoping that they would sink it up into their skin and drive into traffic. That is a very popular and like a first evidence video where if it doesn't matter if they're planning it, if they're just talking about that, I am questioning every I'm tasting my water before I go and drink a good amount of it. Like I'm going to be doing a bunch of things different, just scared on the aspect. And we know because after the confessional hearings, when William Colby exposed a lot of stuff about Watergate, if you look up Watergate, the main articles will say the CIA will never recover from this because the explosion of, you know, people that died, wiretapping, all this kind of intrusion onto people's privacy. And then, I mean, I've talked to a friend of William Colby who admits like, he thinks that Williams Colby's death is suspicious and whether you want to say that's conspiracy or not. I mean, he writes books on the CIA. His name is John Ranley. He has a different perspective than I would about the CIA. I'm more like the government's messed up. He was more like, but it's for good cause. 
And I think you have to kind of balance those two things when you kind of look into stuff like this. I mean, when they say counterterrorism, I mean, what are they deeming terrorists? I mean, there's always that whatever that stereotype if, if you can type in on your computer how to make a bomb the cia will be watching you i don't know if that's real or not and it's just like you get into an aspect of like are you actually implying as the government are you actually putting things in measure for our safety or are you just putting measure to squash things that you don't like and it's really hard to base where that line is because i feel like it, it's like kind of like a tennis match it goes back and forth a little bit you know the first time the terms really used is during the french revolution um, and there's a whole period called the terror. And that's when the radical, the Jacobins are using the guillotines and they're chopping off the heads of the aristocracy. Then it kind of rolls back on them and Rose Pierre loses his head. But then, you know, you have different periods, you know, then in, in the Russian revolution, it's used, it's used by anarchists or use it like we describe anarchists who are doing bombings and assassinations and also ethnic nationalists, like the guy who killed Archduke Ferdinand and, um, in Sarajevo and started World War One, but it's used interchangeably, really, with other terms. Our anarchists, Bolsheviks, revolutionaries, guerrillas, you know, radicals. It's in the '70s that this term terrorism, as like, gets really used and starts to be used in law and politics, in, and in a way that starts to have this kind of connotation similar to like communism in the early Cold War. Like, it's just this like threat to Western civilization and American democracy. So this, my book is partly looking at that. Were you going to say something else? I was going to say, how big was anarchy back then? Like, was there a long, like, deep history of anarchy or something like that? Because, like, I only know from the punk movement. I thought that was like a recent, like, you know, a punk trend, you know, like Marilyn Manson type thing, that type. I didn't know how, I don't know how deep this really goes. But I mean, is it, is it did you find anything that was like, I guess, older history about anarchy and being just this? threat to the establishment i would say sure so this is a, si a sidebar but that's totally cool um so my first encounter with anarchism was also in the punk movement like in high school in the 90s in connecticut like i remember this dude named dave who was punk who i knew from like trading zines we used to trade zines in the mail like um you know back before you had podcasts and the internet and stuff but like, and he was in another town in Connecticut and then we started hanging out at this like coffee shop that had an open mic night and stuff. And, and that was where I first encountered it. And I kind of associated with that too. But then I learned this deeper history and then became an anarchist. I'm not an anarchist anymore. I, I still have friends who are anarchists. But so the, the movement itself really goes back into the 19th century and, and in kind of um, mid 19th century, especially but, and is part in Europe and, and to a lesser extent, North America, Australia, other places, but is a reaction to industrial capitalism. And it's kind of part of a socialist movement and part of the labor movement. There's different strands of anarchism, but anarchists essentially um, want to get rid of capitalism and they want to get rid of the state. They see the state as oppressive. I, that's where I kind of disagree. I'm not, uh, I think the state is a place for, like we need a state for a complex society. It's a matter of who controls it and how and uh, democracy and stuff. But anyway, that that's what, so the, but so among anarchists, right? There's been different like um, strategies and tactics for how to create change with pacifists, anarchists. There's even anarcho-capitalists, um, which, um, but the most, mostly they have been on a left anti-capitalist tradition, but there were some late 19th, early 20th century, especially who kind of thought there could be sort of a shortcut to a revolution, right? Where if you could, and they call it propaganda by the deed, if you can assassinate a head of state, a monarch, you know, or maybe an industrialist, maybe by doing that, you'd somehow provoke like a wider kind of up workers, up revolutionary uprising. And that didn't actually happen. I mean, even- um, You mean like regime change? Well, the idea like President McKinley, um, William McKinley is assassinated by an anarchist in, in 1901. And that's how Theodore Roosevelt, his vice president, becomes president. And his name is uh, Leon Zaltz. But the idea was like, oh, if I assassinate, maybe if I assassinate him, then other people would just like revolt against their the bosses and industrialists who like run the factories and like pay people these starvation wages and like, and, and you know, we'll, we'll take over the factories and and run them ourselves through democratic councils and and you know will no longer be exploited by the capitalist class like instead of, it's kind of a shortcut because the traditional way of of organizing a revolutionary change would be to like get all the work convince all the workers to join unions, unions and yeah. then 
be unions that eventually have the capacity to like all go on strike and shut down the economy. It's a hell of a shortcut, dude. That's a hell of a shortcut. Yeah, it's kind of, but it's interestingly what you have to to just bring this back to, you know, the, the sixties and seventies, there's a similar kind of philosophy that takes hold in the international left. And that is, that is, it's called FOCO theory, F-O-C-O. It's comes out of Che Guevara, who you've maybe heard of, who was an Argentinian doctor, but then was like fought with Fidel Castro, with the, Fidel Castro's guerrillas in the Sierra Madres um, during the Cuban revolution. And the Cuban revolution was, was more complex. It wasn't just Fidel's guerrillas, like, you know, leading the revolution. There was also massive strikes in the cities. And in fact, there was some internal conflicts and like um, some leaders in the in the kind of labor movement who who died in the revolution that kind of created a power vacuum where Fidel could come in. But and and the promotion of this FOCO theory is partly a part of like Cuban foreign policy and, and is a bit of a rewriting of history. But at any rate, Che Guevara and this a guy named Regis Debray, who's a French Marxist who like actually fights with Fidel Castro in Bolivia. And some say he's, because he's this bumbling intellectual in the jungle is part sort of led to, to, to um, Che getting killed. But anyway, Debray from, helped promote this idea in a book called Revolution in the Revolution of Foco Theory. And it's just like, there's a, a kind of a split in the international left in the late sixties where some people think we, we can do kind of a shortcut where we like having these disciplined underground guerrilla cells, we can provoke kind of provoke a wider revolutionary uprising it doesn't work out and as i show in the united states case it ends up really playing into the law and order politics of nixon and others on the right and the democratic party ends up promoting law and order too later but um could you explain it doesn't achieve its goals could you explain a little bit about the law and order policy policy that nixon had yeah sure so when nixon nixon just a little background, Nixon. Nixon had first come into Congress in 1946 and um, served in, um, represented California and was a key like leader in the McCarthy, what was what we now think of as the McCarthy era Red Scare, the second Red Scare that happened after World War II was the biggest Red Scare, national Red Scare in America. Like a lot of people today just associated with Senator Joseph McCarthy from Wisconsin. But Nixon played, was a really, a core part of that, like an like and like a dirty kind of anti-communist politics when he was running for office, where he just you know just say his opponents were just were just like these liberals who are one step away from being a communist. And, soft on communism was the yeah, way. soft on all, all that stuff. But then he becomes vice president under Eisenhower, right? And Eisenhower chooses Eisenhower is somebody like you know back in back in the early Cold War, kind of like. Both political parties were led by a basically Cold War liberal, people who still kind of believe like we still need to keep on to keep the, the kind of welfare state and like administrative state and um, social like of the New Deal because it benefits Americans and it keeps the economy stable. Regulator, regu- regulation of the economy, like things like Social Security that, you know, make people working people's middle class people's lives better. Right? And welfare wasn't like a dirty word that happened with the attacks on the left that happened with the rise of the right after the seventies and eighties. But anyway, what you had, but Eisenhower, Eisenhower was kind of like a, a, a more sent, like a base, like to the right of like Kennedy and stuff and Johnson, but like uh, basically a Cold War liberal in the Republican Party. But he chose Nixon because Nixon more represented um, some of that more right, that kind of anti-communist sentiment and he was trying to create a coalition but then nixon it makes nixon also a more a national figure but then he he tries to run for office against kennedy in 60 and he loses in a very close election as you know and he says afterwards you're not going to have nixon to kick around anymore he says to some reporters but then when he runs for office in 68 right you know the the country's really been shooken up big time because of like we said civil rights black power women's movement and the answer the Kennedy's the assassination, Vietnam. Johnson Kennedy's, taking off both Kennedy's assassinations, yeah, King's assassination, all that stuff. Johnson saying he's not going to run again for office. So he the main two he runs on two things, Nixon. He has a secret plan to end the war in Vietnam, peace with honor, he calls it. 
right? But he doesn't say exactly what that plan is. And law and order, okay? Meaning he's going, he, he, he says basically like the problem, the problem in America is not that the police are bad, the police are creating violence or um, that the US is invading other countries or um, that we have economic inequality. The problem is that some people decide which laws they want to break and which laws they don't want to break and that we can just have, he calls it like, and he's building off of other people like Barry Goldwater and even like, even like segregationists and stuff using this language of calling it mob rule. But he plays into, he, he, it's part of a way of, especially getting votes from white people, working class and middle-class white people, not exclusively, but focus on that. On, on one hand, real fear of crime that has been rising, but also it's a racist dog whistle too. You know, and, and um, he, he, it, it's part of what later becomes called a Southern strategy of getting whites in the South who had always voted Democrat because Democrats have been the party that opposed Lincoln in the Civil War, right? And so to, to switch from Democrat to Republican, and it, it's part of a successful strategy and a realignment of the, of the parties. In, in terms of his secret plan to end the war in Vietnam, what we now know is that in 68, Lyndon Johnson actually started peace negotiations um, you know, with North Vietnam and, 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 and bringing South Vietnam into that to try to end the war. Nixon secretly went, had an advisor, Anna Chenault, go to the South Vietnamese and say, don't, you know, stall, don't sign on to the Paris Peace Accords, because when I get into office, I'm going to help you win. And he, by doing that, and, 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 you know, that was illegal, you know, but by doing that, ends up coming into office and expanding the war into Cambodia and Laos and like killing over a million more people. Um, horrendous extension of the war. And that, that when he comes into office, like that, like him coming into office and his expansion of the war leads to even more protesting. People start, um, there's, there's people, a lot of people on the left are like, all right, we were like fat. And, and this was a misreading, you know, I talk about this in the book, but like Nixon's like a fascist or something, you know? And there's some people who are like start, being like, all right, we got to take this, like all the stuff we're trying to do to create change, all these protests, they're not working. We're going to start bombing stuff now. And in fact, my first chapter opens with this, with this bombing that happens outside of Denver on Nixon's inauguration day. Most people don't know about this, but there is a guy, there was a small group of, of, of new left radicals lived in a, a, in a group cabin situation outside in the mountains outside of Denver and they went on his inauguration day and they blew up these big transmission lines that few, that powered um, a Coors um, weapons plant that built uh, nose cones for sidewinder missiles and also steel plating for helicopters for weapons that were used in Vietnam and and they, they shut down um, work at the at the plant for a few hours or maybe an afternoon because of this power going out and then they created carried out some more bombings and then that guy who led that his name was Cameron Bishop he was the first leftist radical to go on the FBI's most wanted list. And then, um, but, but by a few, a couple of years later, there's actually so many leftist radicals and they're mostly all, they're all associated with um, leftist guerrillas. Angela Davis is one of them, but she's not actually a leftist guerrilla herself. Um, and, um, you know, I, I believe her argument that she was wrongly charged, but um, uh, most, there, there's so many that actually F, um, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, expands the 10 most wanted list to 14, and almost, and the major, majority of them are, are these leftist guerrillas carrying bombings, like Bernadine Dorn, H. Rot Brown, you know, people like that. Did you focus on J. Edgar Hoover? Um, any primarily, like, good documentation you got on J. Edgar Hoover's involvement in all this? Like, because I, I get the... Yeah, big time. <laughs> well, Johnson switching from, you know, wanting to pull out troops in the 68 of Vietnam just doesn't sound like the Johnson that I've learned from the Kennedy administration. I mean, Johnson and Eisenhower, Eisenhower wanted peace too, but he believed to achieve peace, you would be tough on communism. If you could muscle them down, you could muscle down Russia, basically. And Kennedy had a different policy. Kennedy, Kennedy switched. He had a, a significant change that ran on a platform of a cold warrior, but then experienced real change where I think his most famous quote, he's got a bunch of them, but one would be, um, I'd rather my kids be red than dead. And it was this nuclear weapons ban thing where we talked about like we need to ban the surface, you know, test of nuclear weapons. It's going to harm us both and we just might as well, you know, shake it. And he was creating back channels on a lot of stuff. But when Johnson took over, he reversed all of Kennedy's policies 
under like the cover. Nobody really knew. And there was questions. I have memos on my computer from Castro and from Cruz, uh, not, not Khrushchev. Um, yeah, it is Khrushchev um, saying who's going to be taking office now that Kennedy is no longer, you know, in there. And it was Johnson. And, you know, we ended up supplying more troops to Vietnam than needed. But then you have Nixon. And I mean, that, that, that's he. there's a bunch of stuff. There's a bunch of incriminating stuff on his tapes and everything like that. But there's just always that name that keeps popping up. I mean, you know, the, the top 10 most wanted, there's the top 10 in Hollywood as well, too. The invasion of the Hollywood 10 with profiles, with Walt Disney transcripts, with Walt Disney and J. Edgar Hoover going back and forth. Where, I mean, for me, that's where I see the fear of this communist aspect is that J. Edgar Hoover was invading Hollywood to make profiles on people who were communists. And it started off by introducing FBI agents and Mickey Mouse cartoons with Walt Disney. But then you read towards the end of the file, he's ratting out people that were just striking up labor unions who just wanted fair wages. And that's the idea of like, what are you labeling as a communist or a terrorist? Are you just labeling people that want fair wages? And that's when you start to question more stuff. Yeah. Um, so I, that, you're making great points and it's a great kind of a great set of questions. And one of the things I try to do as a historian is look at change over time, because there's a tendency to look at FBI operations in a way that I consider ahistorical, which is just kind of seeing them, one, them all be dr being driven by just Hoover, just dislike, you know, going after people he dislikes and, and that being just consistent and unchanging throughout his career. And then even since his career, like, like like that it's just all the same stuff happening and while there's continuities it's important to see the change partly because i believe that looking at that change is not only important because of and same thing with you know we need to look at the change in lb with lbj too because not only is it more historically accurate to understand uh change and nuance and complication and contingency but also because of understanding power and the power that regular people have to actually change power relations and, 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 and organize the change how the, the, the country is run, right? The New Deal that we, the New Deal created in the 30s was, uh, you know, coalitions of what happened because of an organized working class and labor unions. And a lot of them were organized by socialists and communists, you know, not all of them, but they, they, they played an outsized important role in expanding workplace democracy in America. And the history of the right ever since the fifties has been to try to get rid of what the new deal created, what the civil rights movement and women's and LGBTQ movements created in expanding democracy for people. But like, in terms of that change though, that you mentioned. So Hoover, like in terms of us, like if you could like, and there's um, Beverly Gage is a historian at Yale. She just wrote a new, a, a new. she does a new biography of Hoover. It's like 800 pages, it just came out. And I think it's gonna be really good. Maybe you can get her on your show. But um, she like with Hoover, I mean, in terms of like one man having so much power in America, like in the 20th century America, I can't think of another person who's had so much power and so much unaccountable power and power that really undermined democracy. Just like you were talking about this anti, he was like one, another historian, Ellen Schrecker, who wrote a, the best book on McCarthyism, classic book called, um, or the most, um, called Many Are the Crimes. She said, really McCarthyism should be called Hooverism because it was J. Edgar Hoover who was sending all the FBI files to the House on American Activities Committee and these other commissions in the Senate and the House and even on state levels that are like doing these kind of witch hunts of people who are accused of being communists. Um, and but like there it, it's important to recognize change. OK, and so let me skip back to Johnson for a moment, because Johnson, you're right, he's he does, you know, Eisenhower and Kennedy had been sending troops into Vietnam slowly and most Americans weren't aware of it. Um, and he and then um, Oh, there's so much that can be said about it. But anyway, he's the one as a liberal Democrat who's trying to build on Roosevelt's legacy, right? He comes after he's re when he re when he's reelected, he wants to pass civil rights legislation that Kennedy had promised because he was being pushed by the civil rights movement to do so. Um, but he really undermines it by expanding the war into Vietnam, this war in Vietnam, uh, launching an air like, um, you know, aerial attacks on North and South Vietnam and then sending in the troops, you know, in uh 
um, early 1965 and just like creating this thing that really undermines support for the Democratic Party for his great society programs, Medicare and Medicaid, he passed, but there was other things he wanted to keep expanding. But he changes and he shifts and he goes and launches the peace accords um, because, um, because of two things, the anti-war movement in the US and the success of the Vietnamese people in fighting the greatest military that ever existed. In, in, in 1960, early 1968, January and February 1968, you have something called the Tet Offensive in Vietnam. And this was, Tet was a, is a Vietnamese New Year, and you had a coordinated attack by the National Liberation Front, who are the leftist guerrillas in South Vietnam, as well as the North Vietnamese. But the, South, the, the NLF attacks every single military base in every single South Vietnamese government controlled city in South Vietnam. And they're like, they make it all the way into Saigon and there's hand-to-hand -hand combat outside the US embassy, right? Um, and it's put down, crushed brutally by the South Vietnamese and the US, but like that's on the evening news and the, the, the Johnson administration and his military advisors have been saying to the American public on television night after night, oh, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We're killing more of the, the communists than they're killing of us. And eventually they were gonna wear them out. And Tet happens and, and, and then you have protests in the US and, 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 and people are just like, whoa, like they've really been lying to us. And, and so the power of those movements is what brings Johnson down, right? And he decides he's not gonna run for office. He has primary challengers, um, Eugene McCarthy um, 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 wins in the New Hampshire primary, you know? Um, and so he's just like, he's like, he sees the writing on the wall. And so he says he's not gonna run for office and he tries to do this peace deal. But then the Vietnam War brings down Nixon too, right? And that's kind of what part of what this book is about as like Nixon and Hoover. So back to Hoover, in the mid sixties, like Hoover actually brings back, draws like, like bans some of the illegal surveillance tactics that he'd been using during the early Cold War. And the reason for that is because he's getting older. He, um, he, actually, he actually reaches the age limit for an FBI director. I think it's 70 um, around there. And Johnson signs off to let him stay because he, Hoover's just got so much power and influence. Um, and there's just this rising protest and you start to have like, inquiries in the Justice Department and Congress, like people asking, you know, maybe Hoover should be out of here. He's getting too old. Like, or we need to look at what the FBI is doing. It seems like they have too much power. They've been doing well, some sketchy Ken stuff. Kennedy was forcing him to retire. And then once Kennedy was assassinated and Johnson took office, he established Hoover and Hoover ended up staying in um, his director spot of the FBI. Totally. Yeah. And, and Hoover like did surveillance for Johnson at the Atlant the, the um, Democratic National convention in atlantic city he was spying on the civil rights leaders yeah people um, mistake this you know, too. for johnson they yeah. think nixon was the one that installed recording tapes into the white house that's not true it was actually kennedy's administration that installed recording tapes into the white house johnson used them as well too and johnson also used them uh, a secret service button where you could hit a buzzer because he would weird history which is like if you talk to this is why I like learning about this change in Hoover because or change in not only Hoover but Johnson because none of the Kennedy people they'll blame him for the assassination plot which I don't think is I don't think is accurate but when you hear like I talked to Vince Palomaro who interviewed all the Secret Service members man the Secret Service did not like Kennedy and did not like Johnson I mean if you look up the Secret Service accounts of Johnson I mean cheating on his wife a bunch of just weird like crazy stuff where you're like wait is this our president like you, you, you ask those questions and I, I it's interesting to hear the change because like like i said i'm not you i i'm not a kennedy like fanboy like a lot of jfk experts are i'm interested in the history and I, I i like i said i don't i don't like them i don't dislike them i'm just interested in who the person was and trying to understand what that is like other jfk people wouldn't even entertain the idea that johnson changed or had this inner change in him or, or hoover changed because they blame him for most of the stuff where i mean it's interesting you, for you to or for you to say that just so i can enhance my own perspective on it because like i said I, I don't focus in on one left or one right i just want to know every aspect to it i mean if you look at like Nixon, for instance, I mean, he was impeached and a lot of that stuff was not only dealing with Watergate issues, but also you had the recordings and people thought that Nixon was the one that's usually taken the rep for installing recordings into the White House. But they were there previous. That's how we have phone calls of Hoover and Johnson after Kennedy was assassinated.
Yeah. So yeah, Nixon, it's true that um, Kennedy and Johnson had the recording systems. Nixon kind of um, expanded it later in his first term and it was, it was a much bigger and it was voice activated and it wasn't just in the white house and it was in the oval office and in other executive, the executive building too. But that's true. You know, but really, you know, Nixon though, definitely was involved in just serious criminal activity. I mean, beyond just like the Watergate break-in in 1972, which was actually the second Watergate break-in. And then there was even an earlier break-in into the, the psychiatrist, the office of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist in Los Angeles. Like, like those are, people just think of it as that break-in or the cover-up. And it's like, he was involved in all kinds of crimes. Like the Paris peace accords undermining that is just one of them. But, um, so, so, so it's important. I think that's really important to recognize. He, re he really was involved in crimes and he was held accountable. He was not impeached, but the, the articles of impeachment were being drawn up and he saw the writing on the wall and he saw that even people within his own party who really held up principles of democracy over just like partisanship were willing to hold him accountable. Even Barry Goldwater, who was like right, very right wing Republican was the, the, the candidate of the Republican party. And, uh, in 1964, lost in to Johnson in a landslide, but like is kind of seen as like the, like a, like a major figure in the rise of conservatism. Even he was questioning Nixon. Did he leave so it would be like I'm going to leave? You guys aren't kicking me out, type thing. And then he did the piece. Yeah, it was it was like that. And then Ford comes in. Then Ford is his vice president this time. His previous vice president Spiro Agnew had left because of another conspiracy. Futurama is helping me out so other much. Other right illegal now. <laughs> activity, but like so Gerald Ford. Um, it becomes his vice president. And Ford, when he comes into office, immediately pardons Nixon. So Nixon is never held um, accountable. But backing up, I want to just back up back to like Hoover and change. Um, so like Hoover, real. so part of you mentioned like manipulate like like Hoover and kind of like his efforts to kind of even manipulate the, me the, me the media. Part of the Hoover's power his ability to ha to build up the FBI as this agency that had a massive amount of power, surveillance power, you know, they even had files on members of Congress on surveillance files, was because of, they had this autonomy with minimal oversight from Congress or the, 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 the Department of Justice because of this, F this image of the G-man Right. There was even like a, a, an FBI television show where it was like, the, you know, there were these heroes from uh, like defending national security um, and fighting crime. And, you know, and um, he realizes as there's more in the 60s, as there's more protests and there's people starting to kind of question the FBI, like he, he bans use of break ins. He bans use of warrantless wiretapping. He bans use of mail opening and mail surveillance in the mid 60s because he's worried that if leaks of that activity gets out to the public, it's going to undermine the FBI's image and that's going to undermine their power. Is that right? the Rockefeller and, and Commission? Also his own legacy. Um, uh, I think that was something different. I, I, I'm not remembering in the moment, but there was... um. Under 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 uh, Johnson's um, second attorney general, um, or was it third? Why am I forgetting the guy's name who goes on to become a leftist? Um, <laughs> um, anyway, his later his later um, attorney Ramsey Clark. Ramsey Clark starts you know calling for an inquiry into the FBI, um, you know, kind of quietly. But there's also some stuff in Congress. But um, and he starts the, a couple inquiries in Congress and he bans these things. There's some there's some evidence that there is in New York. There is still a little bit of the break ins going on. But what happens is that. After I mentioned the Weather Underground people blowing themselves up in, 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 in March 6, 1970, in this townhouse in Greenwich Village, the whole thing blows up. Three of them die Two escape and then join the weather under the underground and the weather underground like they rapidly like go fully underground and then they start carrying out bombings um the more bombings the that really is this turning point that creates this crisis within the fbi where they're like there had already been a conflict within the fbi where this guy william sullivan who is the head of the domestic security division and actually like was ahead of a lot of the, the cointel pro activity he had already been working with a guy in the Nixon administration, this young aide named Tom Houston. And they had been talking about how 
they're frustrated because J. Edgar Hoover is still like focused on what they saw as an outdated threat of communism, and they need to be looking at the the, the um, threats of violence on the left. All right, this kind of validates that claim and makes Hoover really start to realize, all right, I got to deal with this. And you know, they don't want to be as FBI agents. They don't want some other attack that's deadly happening on their watch. And that that bombing, that accidental bombing, was actually came from a bomb that was being prepared as an anti-personnel bomb. It had shrapnel in it. They were going to set it off at a dance at Fort Dix, New Jersey for non-commissioned military officers. And it would have killed like girlfriends, wives, waitresses or whatever. The Weather Underground kind of, they lose three of their people and it creates, it's a crisis within them. And they decide, you know, that they're going to focus on trying to do more symbolic bombings at night and call in warnings and not hurt people. Okay, but the web, the FBI doesn't know that, and they don't believe that, don't fully believe the Weather Underground when they start publicly announce that that's their policy, and they're like, these people could still kill people. So they really like see the threat, but they also have all hold all these anti-communist views and stuff. They certainly like and law and order views, right? They don't want to address the war in Vietnam, right? And that's not their purview either, either, either. But anyway, that's when. Hoover starts to unofficially bring back some of these break-ins and these other illegal surveillance tactics, but he does it like with a wink and a nod. He starts, he makes phone calls and he tells people, the FBI agents, especially in New York, but eventually other cities too, to start using these tactics against the weather underground. Um, but then the fact that they're doing off, do, being done off the records creates a problem within the FBI too that I could talk about. But let me back up because I can see you. You have some more questions. Well, I, I, I want to go into that, so don't forget that. But I, I just wanted to ask, how much weight do you put in the aspect that they felt pressured to bring back some of these things and the idea of like, because that was a thing. Like I talked to Dave Talbot and I talked to Stephen Kinzer and like you talk about the MK Ultra docker, Sidney Gottlieb, or you talk about Alan Dulles being in charge of MK Ultra. The way that they were thinking about what they were doing was like, I have to do what other people won't do to save the America, like save and when you get that in your head, it really justifies a lot of your actions. Like the CIA is not officially supposed to activate on domestic land, but we all know that that's not true. They've done it for a while. And it's like that sliding scale. When does the first domino kind of fall down to where you just start inching a little bit more and more and more Then eventually you lose track of the main goal? I mean, it's kind of getting like lost in the weeds a little bit, but I start wondering that. I mean, like half, like when I look at Alan Dulles's perspective and you can talk to anybody in the Kennedy assassination, they'll say he's a horrible demon person. But if you see the way he's thinking about things, you start going, okay, he's not thinking about your feelings. He's not, it's like the business mentality we have today. The world's kind of Google. They don't care about your feelings. They're just, they're companies making money. And we, we look at it like, why is big data stealing our stuff? It's like, well, we're thinking personal. We're not thinking business. And that's kind of what you have to look back then. The FBI, if they had to revive, you know, old tactics or things that they haven't used in a while is because there is a significant threat and we know these work. So we might as well use it. And then eventually that just gets pushed on to anything that they can label a terrorist action. I don't think I'm wrong in saying that. I think it's just an interesting thought. No, that's a great question. And so it brings up this question of like, of motives and, 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 but also thinking about motives, but also power and the kind of the consolation of who has power in the society and government at the time for what and, and why, because of the different changes and conflicts. Um, so certainly, especially, you know, the, the people in the FBI from the top to bottom are, you know, politically conservative people, almost all white men, a lot of Catholics. I mean, um, the, the FBI intentionally like recruited Catholics because they, they, they saw Catholics as people who are Catholic as having more of like inclined to being part of big organizations where they would respect authority. Um, and it was, a but, um, but anyway, there is a shift, though, that's happening generationally where younger people, um, like after Hoover dies, that his, his successor, the acting director, L. Patrick Gray, actually changes the dress codes and allows people to have sideburns and agents to have sideburns and have longer hair that maybe touches their collar. Hoover yes. never allowed that. In the, that was in the 70s. No, Hoover just, dies in 1970. Yeah, I'm mean, in the 80s. Yeah, then they're feathering their hair and all that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, but uh, 
anyway, so there, but there's generational changes and the, the people's views on the threat of communism certainly change, you know, and Nixon also pursues detente, like he normalizes relations with the People's Republic of China and signs like, like, um, you know, like arms reduction agreement with Soviet Union. So there's, there's change there too, but um, power is important to understand here, right? Hoover may have still had these anti-communist ideas, but like he's being checked. His power is being put in check because there's more people questioning him and there's these larger movements that he sees as, as a threat, right? But at the same time, this violence is really causing a crisis. And he's, th th this is, there's these attacks happening and like he's the head of, he's supposed to be defending America's internal national security. Like him and the other people in the FBI, on one hand, they don't want some attack and violence that kills people happening on their watch. That's going to undermine their credibility and authority and, and, you know, weigh on people's conscience too. People die. On the other hand, they don't want leaks happening, showing that they're involved in a bunch of illegal activities because that's going to shock America's conscience, right? That's what the KGB does, right? The Soviet Union, our police forces, you know, uphold democracy. Like they don't want that to happen. But what happens is crisis is all of Hoover's worst nightmares come true. Because ultimately we have that break-in that happens in media Pennsylvania that I mentioned in the midst of all of this. And then he's, they're not able to catch the weather underground. The black liberation emerges, they're assassinating cops. Many of them are, there are arrested and rounded up more quickly because they're doing more riskier tactics, right? And they're and they're and part of it is like they're black. They're not they're they're and working class people. They're not able to like some of the weather underground people who are white and like have come from money and they're able to like have some family money that they're sharing or they're able to like walk into the Capitol and like plant a bomb the way a black person could. So, but anyway, they get busted more quickly. But it's it's more to do with like ta like tactical issues among the group itself than like necessarily the FBI's ability to like find the underground. But um, so the point is then it creates a real crisis. Hoover ends up bringing back some of these tactics on an unofficial basis. Um, but then when he dies, you start to have this power struggle within the FBI and between the FBI and Nixon administration continuing. So yeah, in terms of that pressure, like Nixon is on the phone with Hoover, like from the beginning saying, I want like, for, like, as soon as Hoover comes into office, right? and they had been friends, right? They'd worked together in the early Cold War. Like Nixon is like, I want evidence that these urban uprisings and these riots and these campus protests against the war, I think that Cuba or China is, is funding it. And Hoover says, no, this is homegrown. We don't have evidence of that. And that, so this is tension already. And then, the, then another turning point is like, after that, that, that townhouse bombing, the weather underground, another thing that happens is that that guy, Tom Houston, in the Nixon administration I mentioned, he works behind Hoover's back with that guy, William Sullivan. Um, and William Sullivan's always like kissing up to Hoover in person, but he's like working behind his back. And he's hoping he's going to become FBI agent, FBI director one day too. But anyway, they come up like Sullivan helps Houston draft this plan. It's called the Houston plan. And it comes out during the Watergate hearings. And it was basically like a blueprint for something that we have out like after 9-11. It was going to consolidate all of the intelligence agencies under the direct control of the White House, and, and it was going to bring back all those illegal surveillance tactics, right? Um, it ends up getting passed by Nixon, but he verbally authorizes it. And then Hoover goes around and uses a, when he finds out, he's pissed off because he sees this as like an affront to his jurisdiction and under, undermining the FBI's autonomous power. He basically goes to Attorney General John Mitchell, who was one of the only top Nixon administration officials who didn't know about the plan. He says, if, I'm, if, if you put this into power, I'm going to come to the Justice Department and ask for a subpoena every time you want me to do an illegal break-in. And, and Sullivan, who later is arrested for, for like, and, and does time, I'm, I'm not Sullivan, um, Mitchell, John, the Attorney General John Mitchell, later does time for his Watergate crimes, right? He, he says to Nixon at this time, this is too much, you know, Hoover, Hoover's not going along with this. It's going to be more trouble than it's worth. And Nixon ends up, they end up tanking the, the, the Houston plan. And then, they, and that, but the, the main justification of the Houston plan was terrorism, going after terrorists. The, and they were framing these leftist guerrillas as terrorists. There's a new, um, the first kind of 
US government agency officially um, explicitly is going after so-called terrorism is the Cabinet Committee to Combat Terrorism. That's instituted a couple of years later in 72 after that attack at the Olympics, but it's very much weakened. It doesn't have much power. It's mostly just a clearinghouse for intelligence and funding some, some research. Um, and, and the reason it's not stronger is because the Watergate un uh, is, is unraveling by then. But real quick, after the Houston plan, then this simmering conflict between Hoover and, and Nixon over like, who over like use of surveillance and illegal surveillance tactics and who should be in control, it goes from being just like a simmering conflict to a full-blown kind of institutional conflict. And after Hoover dies, the person who really kind of continues that conflict from the FBI side is W. Mark Fell, also known as Deep Fell. All right. I can explain that more. But so that's that's how this conflict, this origins of American counterterrorism. Is inter the history is interwoven with this bureaucratic conflict within the FBI between the FBI and Nixon's White House over like who should care who gets to carry out illegal tactics and under whose authority. So what happens is after in in, in um uh, nineteen summer of nineteen seventy one, Daniel Ellsberg, who's worked for the Rand Corporation, he he leaks what's called the Pentagon Papers, showing that every president from from Truman to Johnson had lied about the war in Vietnam. That name sounds and, so familiar. I don't yeah, know why. Yeah, Daniel Ellsberg. Um, there's a whole, El at university, my alma mater, University of Massachusetts Amherst, there's this whole Ellsberg Institute that's being set up. Um, but Daniel Ellsberg, he's still alive. He's in his 90s. I know. I think I reached out to him at one point. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's I cool. Saw, I saw he had yeah. Pentagon Papers on there. I think that's why that name sounds familiar. But you answered basically answered my question. I was going to ask what happened when Hoover died. Because, uh, I mean, if you look at Hoover's power over the FBI, Nixon seems like I have to be buddy-buddy with this. But if they're having conflicts, I would think that the FBI agencies would just be going against Nixon the whole time. And he can't get them under wraps. It would be the new CI or new FBI director. Yeah, so what happens is just to, 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 to can you thread that needle? See or finish threading it. Hoover's still alive in, in the summer of 71 when Ellsberg releases the Pentagon Papers and they're published in the Washington Post. There's a whole movie called Post um, about it. It's a, cool, a pretty good movie. Um, but um, the Nixon gets on the phone. And, and so what are, you know, Watergate is not just about responding to leftist guerrillas. It's also about like leaks. So what are like Hoover gets on the phone and I, and I, and I covered like from the Nixon tapes in the book, um, them having this conversation. They also talked about the black liberation army. They talked about some other attacks that happened. Um, this guy, Jonathan Jackson, um, young black radical, like tries to do a hostage situation at a courthouse in California in 1970. Like that's another thing they talked about on the phone and some other attacks, that some other guerrilla stuff that happens in August, 1970. But anyway, after the Pentagon papers are, are leaked, who like Nixon? Nixon is like freaking out because he's worried that even though like he wasn't implicated in the Pentagon Papers, that there's going to be some other stuff about him and his illegal activities, including his his work on the Paris Peace Accord. It's cover yeah. your ass, man. That's yeah. the topic to cover, of discussion. Cover that ass. That's what he's trying to do. So um, he he cuts on the phone with Hoover and he says like, I want you to go aggressively after this Ellsberg guy. I, I think there's a larger conspiracy here. And Hoover, I mean, he's very, you know, he's a master bureaucrat and diplomat. He's careful of how he says it. He kind of dodges the subject, but basically he gets across, he delivers to Nixon like, nah, the FBI is not gonna do the break. We were willing to do it over these so-called, these guerrillas or terrorists, but we're not gonna do it for purely partisan objectives of yours. And that's when Nixon and his staff, and well, it's more his staff, form the plumbers. They form their own counter, their own intelligence and counterintelligence unit with Howard Hunt and and um, and Gordon Liddy and the gang. And that's who, and their first break-in is Daniel, El that guy, Daniel Ellsberg, who I mentioned, who releases the Pentagon Papers. They break into the office of his psychiatrist in LA. At the Smithsonian Museum, there's still the, the filing cabinet where they took a crowbar to it and has big dents in it. You can go, you can see a picture of it online. Like they tried to, they were trying to find info they could use to try to discredit Ellsberg. Then they did all this other stuff um, referred to by some as like rat fucking, you know, like they tried to, they, 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 they took down, Ed, um, and I don't, some of this, I don't get into all of it in the book. But I, I, I'm trying to really follow the thread of the response to the leftist guerrillas, but I mean, they tried like, 
Edward Muskie was one of the Democratic candidates in 1972. They undermine his campaign with covert operations. But anyway, um, the the plumbers then they break into the Watergate the, the Watergate Hotel and the Watergate office complex, and they break into the Democratic National Committee. First, they plant the listening device, and they get away with it, but the listening device doesn't work. So they go back, and that's when they're busted by like local police. These these burglars, but it's kept under wraps, you know, because the, the Nixon administration immediately starts to cover up, and Nixon's able to win the 1972 election. Um, but what he was doing was trying to illegally make sure he'd win that election, but he ends up winning it anyway. Um, but anyway, it's after the election that the, the 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 case really blows up, and Mark Felt's kind of counterintelligence against Mark Felt resents that L. Patrick Gray is put in as Hoover's replacement. Hoover dies. Um, um, May 1971, and Nixon appoints basically a lackey, a Nixon guy who, you know, L. Patrick Gray even says to him, you know, I'm a Nixon loyalist. So th that's who, and, and Felt resents that. He also want, thought he'd maybe be get to be the director, but he, he starts to like try to, on one hand, bring him, and he's working with Edward Miller, who's Sullivan's replacement at the head of domestic security. Sullivan gets pushed out. Um, but anyway, they're trying to bring back the break-ins on a on a formal still secret but formal basis because the fbi agents want security that like if i get caught doing this the fbi is going to have my back right they don't want to be left hung out to dry so their morale was sinking but hoover is still but i'm sorry phil is still a hoover loyalist and he wants to make sure that um that the fbi has this autonomy and is not just doing partisan bidding of nixon and he, so he resents Al Patrick Gray being put in ahead of the FBI. So he starts basically doing counterintelligence against undermining Gray and Nixon. And he ends up, and he's, he's leaking information to not only the Washington Post, but also Time Magazine. And the, that, that information helps fuel the scandal and you know, ultimately brings down Nixon, as you know, and Al Patrick Gray. And, but it brings down him too. Um, the number of they, times I've heard Time or Life magazine brought up in so many of this like weird stuff about either the assassination or Watergate stuff. I'm just like, I mean, because I don't know, because we don't have it's not as powerful, I would say, as it was probably back then. But, dude, no, Daniel, I appreciate you giving me your time. And I know we kind of went all over the place. I mean, you know, focus a little bit. I like that, though. You got me interested in the Nixon administration. I'm definitely going to be searching into that a little bit more. Yeah, cool. Well, um, people can check out my book, um, you know. But it was great to talk. I'm glad it was interesting. It was interesting to me, too. It was really a pleasure to talk to you, Robbie. Uh, where can people find your book, uh, Daniel? Yeah, so so um, University of North Carolina Press um, website has it. My, my website, Daniel Schar, D-A-N-I-E-L-S-C-H-A-R-D.com. You can find a link there. Also, other places that sell books, It's um, you can find it um your, your local bookstore yeah yeah i didn't want to say jeff bezos's company but <laughs> fine. You, i know that's where a lot of people get books it's fine you can get my book there Go for look it. the people that criticize jeff bezos are still probably ordering something off amazon it's just they dominate the market right now i mean unless they get simon and schuster i think is up there but i don't know they weren't as strong as like when uh, i was a no kid. no no amazon dominates the market and like i'm not like making some moral moral thing you know i support the amazon workers who are trying to like get a better working conditions and pay. just not going to the bathroom in bottles would be nice you know what i mean yeah that's, yeah that's pissing a little dark. i mean I, yeah yeah that's dark pissing in bottles i don't want anyone to he spent 1.6 million dollars getting into a giant robot for 10 minutes i was like hey right, right. he's in outer space and his workers are pissing in bottles come on he made william shatner cry uh no but i'm gonna link all your links in the description daniel seriously man it's been a pleasure you're welcome back anytime um thanks everybody for listening to this episode of out of the blank stay tuned for next episode